I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the Mick Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now, are we there yet? We might well have a new government in the making and if so, it will come into being on Saturday, June the 27th when it will be 139 days since the general election. Now, what we have is a proposed programme for government which was uh, negotiated and agreed by Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael and the Greens as we speak the three parties are deliberating in one form or another on the agreement and whether they individually will accept it and advance to creating a coalition. In that regard, Fine Gael probably have the easiest passage, if you're looking from the point of view of getting it passed, uh, in that they have a weighted system, which gives about half of all the votes to their TDs and senators, another chunk to councillors and more to members. So I suppose if you have the parliamentary party on side there, they have an excellent chance of passing it. Fianna Fáil have one person, one vote. A simple majority is required. It seems the observers, the, the political hacks and what have you, seem to be of the opinion that there is an excellent chance of that passing with Fianna Fáil. The Greens are the most interesting. A two-thirds majority is required. And the other interesting aspect to it is that the Green Party also includes their Northern Ireland members in the electorate to decide on whether or not to go into the coalition. And those from the North account for around 500 of the 3,000 members they have on the island. So, as you can see, the Northern Ireland members, and I think we'll talk about that in a minute, are a pretty significant contingent. Significantly, on Thursday, in the course of an online conference for the party, the deputy leader, Catherine Martin, who led the delegation in the negotiations, but who, prior to that, uh, decided she wasn't in favour of a coalition. Significantly, during this online conference, she gave what's described as a strong endorsement to the deal. So that'll be interesting to see what effect that may have. Now, to discuss all of this and much else about the current political environment, I'm delighted to welcome UCC political scientist, Dr. Teresa Reedy. Teresa, you're very welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much indeed, Mick. It's lovely to talk to you. Teresa, read the runes for me. Is this thing going to get passed? I think it's probably hanging in the balance in the Green Party a lot of the analysis of the, of the Green Party has kind of suggested that it, they're a little bit naive and amateurish. And I think that's not really to fully understand that the members of the Green Party 
very sincerely believe that we are on the cusp of a kind of global calamity uh, in the form of uh, of climate change. And, and for that reason, there's a significant group of them who really feel that they can't compromise on their um, on their objectives and on their goals. And I think from the outside looking in, that kind of makes them seem a little bit unreasonable uh, to kind of some of the more pragmatic political observers. But I, I think we, we have to remember that, that they joined the Green Party in the first instance because they are committed to this environmental cause. And they, they see it as something that is so serious and challenging that they can't compromise. On the other hand, there's a, a group of people within the Green Party who, again, are, are kind of primarily driven uh, by this uh, commitment to improving the uh, ecological future for the planet, but they're perhaps a little bit more pragmatic. And some of them have certainly been involved in governing before, and, and they are kind of evaluating this in, in a different way. They're probably saying, look, this programme from government actually gives us um, more than perhaps we might uh, be deserving of in terms of our numerical strength as a consequence of the uh, election. Uh, that The two other big parties have conceded to many of our, our serious uh, requests. And the choice that they see in front of them is a little bit different. It's we can get all of this in the current programme for government, or we can watch these two parties walk away and probably do a deal with rural independence, which would likely deliver a much more regressive set of policies in, in the coming years. Um, so they see it as a kind of a matter of degree and, and the potential to achieve uh, progress. And the great unknown is that we don't know what the balance between these two groups are. Um, in in 2007, when the Greens went into government, you know, nearly 80% of the members voted to go into government. So there was overwhelming endorsement and enthusiasm almost about going into to government. This time around, there seems to be a much larger and much more vocal opposition within the political party. And it, it's also an opposition that's much more present within the parliamentary party itself. Indeed, probably the unusual thing is the fact that Nessa Horrigan, who was a member of the negotiating team, has herself very strongly come out against the document, even though she was actually part of the team that negotiated it. So that kind of tells you that, you know, this is a very significant cohort within a political party. And two thirds is a very high threshold in terms of getting anything, uh, getting anything through. You know, if we were at the local bridge club and we were taking a vote to move something from Monday to Tuesday, if we set up a 20, you know, a 66% majority, the chances are it wouldn't get, uh, it wouldn't get through. So I, I think the kind of analysis to date that it says, you know, it's all down to the Green Party um, is is definitely uh, definitely true. I think that uh, Catherine Martin came out and, and spoke um, very favourably of the deal is important because um, she had been very quiet up to that point on the deal. Um, you know, she she had obviously endorsed it, but but hasn't really been to the forefront of political commentary. You know, she hasn't been tweeting support for the for the deal. So it was important when she did come out that she did um, endorse the deal. And that may sway a number of people. I think there have been other important interventions in the debate. John Sweeney from um, uh, the 
National University of Ireland, Maynooth, is a, a very well-known voice on environmentalism in Ireland. And, and he certainly came out in favour uh, of it. And, and I think that would probably have reassured some people uh, as well. But it, it's going to hang in the balance uh, and we're not going to know until the kind of effectively the votes come in. And if I could make probably a bigger political point or political research point at this stage, we actually know very little about the members of political parties, generally speaking, in Ireland. Um, and, and we often don't pay a lot of attention to the people who are members of political parties. But right now, there's a spotlight on those people. And I think we should kind of more generally acknowledge that they really can play a seismic role in politics. And one that we don't often see right now, it's in relation to approving programs of government. But the other one that we don't ever really talk about or acknowledge is the fact that party members actually do the kind of interview pre-screening uh, of all candidates at elections. So you don't get uh, a ballot paper that's kind of organic and, and kind of comes from the political system. It's one where the party members have already done the decisive pre-screening step. And we actually don't know very much about the political party members. So in the Green Party's case, we know that they're probably a little bit younger and a bit more gender balanced than Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, where we expect or we have some idea that the members are a little bit older um, and predominantly male. And again, we infer from that that they're probably a little bit more conservative. Yeah, very interesting, Teresa. A couple of things about that. You mentioned Nessa Howard. You know, some people have made comparisons, and I don't know whether it's fair or not, but I suppose people are going to do this in historical terms with a court, Robert Barton, who was among the delegation with Arthur Griffith and Michael Collins, who negotiated the Anglo-Irish Treaty in December 21, and subsequently went over to the anti treaty side but that's neither here nor there one element to it and you mentioned the kind of way it might break down within the Greens Theresa um, apart from the climate issue which quite obviously is the party's raison d'etre do you sense at all that some of the opposition and I'm thinking here particularly about Nessa Horrigan particularly based on an interview she did during the week on uh, Virgin Media that the, the, the principal objection that the likes of uh, Deputy Horrigan and others of a like mind have is not so much that it doesn't go far enough in basis of climate action or even climate justice, but it, that it doesn't go far enough in terms of the socioeconomic issues and that it doesn't meet a threshold that particular element within the Green Party would consider is required for it to meet a social justice uh, sort of element of things. Yeah, I mean, I think there's no doubt that there are um, kind of cross-cutting policy lines or, or priorities within the Green Party. Now, um, environmentalism is not the kind of the sole dividing line between the, the, the groups. Um, there's certainly a younger cohort of, of uh, Green Party politicians and members um, for whom social justice and more general kind of left-leaning policy issues are very important. I mean, I think looking at the document, there are aspects of kind of social and economic policy favoured and prioritised by the Green Party that really are very evident in, in the programme for, for government. So we, we know, for example, that direct provision was a priority uh, for quite a number of, uh, of, of those uh, those people. And, and there's a plan in there to, to eliminate that. And um, there's lots of priorities and, and lots of policy suggestions about gender balance and dealing with gender identity issues, all of which are kind of quite sensitive and, and are priorities for these, um, uh, these supporters. But the 
kind of crucial issue that that I think NASA Horrigan raised that you can't kind of stray away from is that the underlying financials for the program for government are vague. Um, um, there are commitments in there that says income tax won't go up, universal social charge won't go up. There's a commitment actually that the property tax, the base will be expanded to more homeowners, but that the amount that people are paying will broadly speaking stay the same. Corporation tax is expected to stay uh, the, the same, this commitment to the 12.5%, per all of which kind of combines to say that the revenue side of government accounts is going to be about the same and probably even less given the impact that the COVID-19 recession is going to have. So where is the money going to come from uh, for the kinds of uh, social policies and for the kind of Green New Deal that's at the core of the uh, at the core of the, the document? And I think Horgan was really getting at that in, in particular, that I guess her key concern is that the commitments might be notional because the financial basis isn't um, isn't terribly clear. Now, I suppose the other side of that argument is that right now there is so much uncertainty about the economy. It's very hard to put precise figures on on anything. We don't know what government revenue is going to be this year. We don't even know what government expenditure is going to be uh, this year. But I think there there is a fair point made that um, some of the, the the commitments are contingent on financing that may or may not be there. And I guess the social justice wing of the, of the party, and I know they don't like that label, but, but I think it probably does describe them reasonably well. They are very concerned about being associated with any kind of cutbacks or um, you know, reductions in, in some schemes to pay for expansion, for example, in the Green uh, in the green New Deal. And they're absolutely opposed uh, to being associated with austerity. Now, I don't think austerity is actually a terribly useful word anymore because austerity is, is something that's kind of bandied around to describe everything at this stage. Um, but there's certainly no doubt that they don't want to be associated with, associated with any cutbacks or, or fiscal retrenchments um, in, in social policies. And, and there's undoubtedly a line of argument that can be taken that the programme for government is a little bit vague. If the financial inputs are staying the same, um, either the outputs have to stay the same or heavy borrowing has to be used uh, you know, to make up the make up the difference. And in and of itself, borrowing is also problematic because, of course, borrowing might not have to be paid back immediately, but it is effectively a tax on future generations. Is there an issue, Theresa, so in relation to those who voted for the Greens, which you might call, say, the Green electorate, and quite obviously they did extremely well. They went from two seats to 12 seats in the last election. I would have had the impression, and it may well be mistaken, that the vast, vast majority of that electorate voted for the Greens to the greatest extent on the basis of their climate change position. Now, if you have a scenario whereby perhaps a minority, maybe a considerable minority of the members are more concerned with what we might call social justice issues. Is there an issue there in terms of being in tune with their voters? And is there also an issue that if this deal collapses, if there's another general election, will they be facing a relatively hostile electorate? Well, I think I'd probably take the last question first, uh, and that is if there is another general election, 
And the Green Party is seen to trigger that on the grounds of a reluctance to govern. Uh, that would pose very serious problems for a number of their uh, their existing TDs. And they're going to face problems in, in coming from a, in two directions. Um, one is undoubtedly their voters tend to be uh, middle class, um, actually kind of upper middle class. They tend to be quite highly, uh, highly educated and they tend to be predominantly urban and they probably do have some degree of expectation uh, that the party would go into government. So they will lose support, especially in those kind of uh, well-heeled Dublin middle-class constituencies. The second problem that they're going to face um, in any kind of uh, general election in the next three to six months is that Sinn Féin support is holding strong. And a lot of Green Party seats were won on the back of large surpluses from the the Green Party. And that's because Sinn Féin didn't expect to do as well as they did. And they didn't have enough candidates in the uh, in in the actual election to actually uh, benefit or to maximise the the return for them. Sinn Féin won't make that mistake a second time. Uh, The next time around, in a lot of those Dublin constituencies, there will be two Sinn Féin candidates and there won't be large surpluses uh, going to the to the Green Party. So they could actually be squeezed very significantly in uh, a general election if it were to be held in in the coming months. They'll be squeezed because the kind of favourable conditions of February won't be there for them. And they'll also be facing a much more hostile um, kind of middle class, uh, middle class electorate, potentially people for whom environmentalism is the overriding concern. You know, um, people uh, who have been drawn to the the Green Party because climate change has mainstreamed as a global uh, issue. And it wasn't just at the February general election, you know, that voters uh, were reflecting that kind of priority. We saw it very significantly at the European Parliament elections. And there was Eurobarometer uh, polling data going into the European Parliament elections showing that about 17 or 18 percent of people were actually citing environmental issues as the single most important issue uh, for them. Um, And some people took the the data that came out of the the exit poll um, to say that, you know, green issues didn't really matter at the general election. But actually about six or seven percent of people said green issues were their number one priority. Now, that's small in the grand scheme of things, but it's a lot of people for whom environmental issues are really front and centre. And undoubtedly, some of them will will look at this as an opportunity missed, if you want, um, a potential for for the party to have gone into government and to have had a significant impact um, and, and, uh, you know, for that not to have been realised. So I think there are clear electoral dangers for the party. Okay, and just want to keep the whole thing going. The Greens, but one other very interesting aspect because they they seem front and centre. Because they, as you say yourself, they're the one party where it seems to be up in the air as to whether they, they'll uh, pass the steel. And that is the element of the northern members. Now, I think it's between four and five hundred members, and uh, from what I can gather, that wouldn't necessarily follow that they would all be interested in voting in this. And it's about two and a half thousand in the south, potentially either in terms of passing it or of uh, turning it down with a two-thirds majority, they could be vital. And you're effectively talking about a situation where a cohort who have neither a vote, nor pay taxes, nor can avail of services down here, could decide whether or not we're going to get a government out of this. I mean, that argument is potentially true, but there are a couple of kind of caveats we have to insert there. Not all of the Green Party's members registered to have a vote in the programme for government. We know there's a couple of hundred that did not. Uh, we don't know whether they are 
from Northern Ireland or, or not, but they potentially uh, potentially could be. And we know that when you don't have kind of a direct stake in the game, you're much less likely to participate. So that would lead us to suggest that probably uh, some of them are. The second thing to say is those are their rules and, and those have always been their, their rules. In fact, the Green Party does really prioritise its kind of all-island status and, and has done for quite some time. So, for example, they've always run a candidate or certainly at the last couple of elections have run a candidate every constituency in the country because they prioritise this idea that everybody on the island should have the opportunity to vote for a Green Party uh, a Green Party candidate. So the fact that the rules kind of reflect um, that... Uh, uh, that Northern Irish um, role uh, is not terribly surprising and it's not something that the Green Party, um, you know, have, have kept away from, from others. It's undoubtedly the case that some of the Northern Irish members uh, could have the decisive impact on this, but it's unlikely in the grand scheme of things. And we're also not going to know whether they, they do or they don't, because this is going to be a secret, um, a, a secret ballot. And when we look at these internal party democracy rules, you know, they vary across the different political parties. So in, in the Green Party, there's a 66% threshold. In Fianna Fáil, it's a 50% threshold. And in Fine Gael, actually, the members have a much more restricted uh, say because they operate a kind of a college electoral uh, electoral system. The thing with electoral rules is uh, they have to be known in advance, they have to be agreed by the members, and they have to be applied fairly. Uh, and then the outcome is the outcome. Okay, now turning to the other two legs of the potential stool, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael. As we've seen, Teresa, we've gone to, from a scenario, I think I saw it somewhere earlier this week, 1969 was just about 80%, may have been for a number of years after, we're down to 43% combined between the two parties. Is that trajectory, in your opinion, going to continue or will it stabilise around that 40, 40, 45%? And within that, would you envisage a merger or would you envisage, as it seems possible now, if not probable, Fine Gael emerging as a very distinctive, perhaps centre-right party and Fianna Fáil possibly declining and creeping towards the centre and being one of the additions to future coalitions, whether they be right with Fine Gael or, or left with Sinn Féin? Now, there, there's grave dangers in making predictions uh, about uh, about political parties, but there, you know, there there's one thing that a, a party a research around the world tells us, uh, and it's that old parties like Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael they don't die, uh, they don't disappear. That's actually a relative. Uh, relatively rare phenomenon. There are very few examples of kind of big political parties that kind of dominated the political scene in countries disappearing uh, over time. So I wouldn't write off either of those political parties. And I think I'd be very cautious and remember that in 2002, uh, Fine took a, a serious uh, drubbing at the at the polls. In 2011, there were a lot of people who wrote off Fianna Fáil uh, and they, uh, they recovered. So you know, writing off political parties, I think, is is ill-advised. That being said, there is another thing that we can learn from international political science research as well, and that is that the kind of big political beasts of the 20th century in party terms, they've, they're in decline everywhere. Um, uh, you know, whether you're looking around Europe, you look at the kind of Christian Democrat and social democratic political parties that basically anchored every government across Europe uh, for the kind of 50 years after the, the Second World War. Um, 
in, in nearly all cases, those parties are struggling to retain the connection to voters that they had. And they're becoming much smaller political forces. And most of them are having to govern now in coalition, uh, when in the past they might have been able to form uh, single party uh, single party governments. So these parties, they, they don't disappear, but they certainly... It, exist now in very different forms to what they did uh you know 20 and certainly 50 years ago and i think that's certain that's the case uh for Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael as much as it is for the social democrats and christian democrats uh, across uh, across europe in the irish case you know very specifically i suppose the research we have coming out of kind of the 2020 election is that there's kind of the contours of a left-right divide starting to take place, uh, a shift that we probably saw maybe going back 20 years, but it's it, it's now crystallising more than, uh, than it has um, before. And the poles of party competition appear to be Sinn Féin on the left and Fine Gael on the right. Um, and it's it's center left to, to center right, but but those are if you want the two major anchor points of the the party system, and that raises a very significant problem for Fianna Fáil because they don't have a distinctive point in the party system. Um, you know, their Fine Gael is is the center right party, and Sinn Féin is the center left party. And voters do clearly identify them with issues. So in the election study, um, when we asked voters, you know, which party do they trust most to deal with housing? You know, the vast majority, you know, a significant um, uh, percentage of, of people said Sinn Féin. The same uh, came back in relation to health. Sinn Féin is more trusted in relation to delivery and, and health. Um, on the economy, it, it was decisively Fine Gael. More people trust Fine Gael to manage the economy. They trusted Fine Gael uh, to manage um, Brexit. But Fianna Fáil was, was not visible um, and not kind of identified with any of the big ticket items that kind of uh, feature in public uh, in public debate, and I think that means that there there's a there's a real challenge for Fianna Fáil. I, I don't think it's one that says Fianna Fáil is going to disappear from the political system, but it, it means Fianna Fáil's raison d'être um, needs to be significantly re-examined by the party. Uh, they're certainly still more associated with local political issues. Um, and and they they do have a very strong connection um, in relation to, or a, a kind of I suppose a strong selling point in relation to candidates with good local connections and that's particularly the case in rural constituencies along the western uh, western seaboard but in terms of the big debates and politics uh, the kind of the poles of competition or the axes of competition now seem to be between Sinn Fein and um, and Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil is being squeezed much more in those uh, in those debates. One thing you said there, Theresa, about the decline, and it's interesting that it's not just here that these big established parties, you've seen this across Europe and, and what have you. Does that reflect a, a perceived decline in liberal democracy as it evolved post the Second World War? Or is, is that notion that liberal democracy is in decline, is that exaggerated because we see the likes of Donald Trump and perhaps to a lesser extent Boris Johnson? Or is there something in that? I mean, there's, I think there's two different things happening there. I, I think in, in some countries there there's definitely a, a rise in populist politics and uh, and and certainly you know deep disenchantment with the with the state. But I think in 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 other countries and I think particularly Ireland, you know, kind of old liberal democracies, 
I think politics is changing, but I don't necessarily think, I think it's, it's overstating it to say that this is a kind of a significant challenge to liberal democracy and uh, and, and people, if you want, are rejecting um, the kind of model or the, the, the democratic system that, that that is in place. In the case of the, the bigger political parties, I, I mean, the you know, the arguments that are put forward is, is that the nature of politics has changed very significantly. And if we go back to the kind of 1950s and, and 1960s, the, the big debates really were between the parties of the centre-right and centre-left about the, the role of the state um, in, in, and the development of the welfare state uh, and what the, should be the role of the state vis-a-vis enterprise uh, and what the regulatory role of the state um, should be. And, and there was great debates, if you want, between the centre-right and centre-left on all of those issues. But many of those are now settled. Um, and it's not always clear what the differences between those two kind of formerly big political traditions uh, would be. To, to a great extent, they kind of stand for um, the status quo, uh, for what has been achieved uh, so far. And the processes of kind of political social socialization, whereby, you know, preferences um party political preferences kind of pass from one generation to the next generation, they have changed quite significantly because of generational issues. Uh, younger generations are, are not as interested in these debates about the welfare state and, and kind of uh, the ro- regulatory role of, of government because they see those as uh, settled and, and defined. They're much more inter- interested in questions about the future of the planet. Uh, and that's where the Green Party comes in. Uh, and the Green Party is seen to be uh, providing more relevant policy solutions to the questions that are live and relevant for, for them. So I, d- I don't necessarily think it's a rejection of liberal democracy. It's a reflection of changing political preferences and priorities uh, amongst generations, but not exclusively amongst generations, because we know that, um, you know, voters from all age categories are kind of drifting away from these political parties. So the question is really, what do these big political parties stand for uh, nowadays? So we spend a lot of time talking about kind of what's the difference between Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, all the more so because of the outcome of this last election. But um, more broadly across Europe, the, the kind of questions tend to be about what do the, you know, the big centre-left and centre-right parties stand for anymore? What vision are they offering? What change are they offering for the for the future? And a lot of the kind of smaller political parties are, are seen to be offering kind of more radical uh, solutions. And of course, that's both on the left and on the uh, on the right. And particularly on the right, you, you see some of the kind of anti-system challenges, I think, coming more substantively. But I think that can be over-interpreted as well. Okay, and the other thing is arguably the biggest winner, first of all, it would seem the biggest winner from the election was Sinn Féin, but following on from that, if this deal goes ahead and taking into account we're facing into a time of a very tough time, one way or the other economically, and as long as it persists with the pandemic and all the fallout from that, it would seem that for this deal going ahead, the biggest winner would well be Sinn Féin because they go into the primary position in opposition at a time when, and I'd suggest here, the current times are perhaps a challenge to that dictum Mary Harney had about the, the, the worst day in government being better than the best day in opposition. I think that will be up for grabs in the coming year or two and Sinn Féin will be very well positioned to take advantage of it. That might, but I, I might quote you another maxim of politics, and that's that oppositions don't win elections, governments lose them. Um, so to some extent, 
like the the, the destiny of the parties uh, that are likely to go into government, it lies in their own hands in, in terms of how uh, they actually manage the next five years, uh, in particular how they manage the expectations and how they demonstrate delivery for, for citizens. It's not the case that it's inevitable that governments don't get re-elected anymore. In, in lots of other European countries, we've seen governments being uh, being re-elected, um, going back into office after a successful term in politics. So, like we've heard lots of things about the kind of new government that's likely to take up one is that it's going to you know dissent into um chaos and 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 disintegrate before the first uh, budget and the other is that it's going to lead to the kind of decimation of the political parties involved and like there yes that those things have happened in the past but there's no reason to believe that any of those things are necessarily inevitable uh for for the government so for example um most of the coalitions that we've had in the past haven't actually uh, disintegrated into chaos. Actually, most of the recent coalitions have seen out their full terms. Uh, some of them were re-elected. Fianna Fáil and the Progressive Democrats, for example, were re-elected um, at, at one stage. Uh, Fine Gael's performance in 2016 is a little bit less positive in terms, but they did return to power. So, the, you know, the idea that they will almost certainly be wiped out and that the kind of pathway ahead is clear for Sinn Féin, I think that analysis could be overblown. I mean, it's certainly a, a potential realignment of politics that could be coming, but it's not necessarily an inevitable consequence. Um, there is, a, you know, coalition governments in the past have been particularly successful. I think. The mark of success, though, for, for this uh, government would have to be, or for, I think particularly for Fianna Fáil or Fianna Gael, that one or the other of those parties gets back into government the next time around. Because we talk a lot about this election as being a decisive shift, but, but in fact it really isn't, because Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael have, have been the mainstays of government in Ireland for 100 years. The decisive change would come when you would get a government that didn't involve one or the other of those political parties. That would really be the sign of a, a realignment of Irish politics. Um, so I think for, for the two political parties, um, their hold and grasp on governing in Ireland is up for grabs at the next uh, at the next election. But the idea that it's inevitable that they will lose I would be very cautious or, or more cautious perhaps than some commentators about uh, foretelling that. Very interesting. Theresa, one final thing then, and as you talked about governing and as you say, go, um, governments lose elections. Has governing today become more difficult, particularly when you include uh, the likes of social media? No, when you include, I, I think it's fair to say the mainstream media, if you go back 30, 40 years, is a lot more questioning. But we've got a scenario now whereby you have the parallel social media and all that goes on there. Um, and as well, in, in relation to social media, there's less moderation of any claims, for instance, that are made because they all just go out on social media and nobody can fact check them or whatever. But has governing become more difficult? Has opposition become easier or more difficult today than going back 10, 20 and 30 years? I, mean, I think the context of governing has has changed. Is, is governing more difficult now? I mean, I, I don't know that if we roll back to the last pandemic in 1918, we could say that the government in coming into power now uh, faces easier challenges, you know, than governments a hundred years ago with 
grappled with absolutely overwhelming problems. But I think the context in which governing happens has, has changed. Many of the social issues we have, have left that are really, really challenging, are they're intractable. Um, and, and there's a debate that takes place that kind of suggests, you know, some parties in government, they just don't care about uh, poverty or they don't care about child welfare. That's not true. It's just that those issues are now extremely difficult to address and they're complex and governing has become more complex. And it's become more complex at a time when perhaps the way we cover politics in the news media um, has become more superficial. So I think a lot of um, the complexity is lost in, in translation. Uh, and that's that's one particular problem. I think social media, um, I think social media is blamed for a, an awful lot of, of things, but I, I don't think social media has ne- necessarily kind of altered human reality. It's just providing a much faster way of channeling uh, people's views. In the past, you wrote to the editor of a, a newspaper and they may or may not have taken your views on board. Now you can publish them right away on, on social uh, on social media. Um, so I think it's it's sped up the kind of feedback loop um, in, in a way, and it's taken gatekeepers out of the f- feedback loop uh, and it's allowed some of the, um, you know, more, more critical and, and sometimes perhaps more rash judgments uh, to come to the forefront. And then I think there's a third thing that we just don't pay enough attention to in Ireland, and that's direct interference in politics uh, by outside forces. Um, and that's in, in relation to social media. Um, social media is being used in nefarious ways um, by, uh, you know, sometimes by political parties within the country who perhaps are more aggressive or uh, provide a slant on on things that's not necessarily always very true. I mean, we've become very kind of aware of this during referendum campaigns as well, where there are people on the outside um, seeking to influence debates within, uh, within Ireland. And I think at our elections, we need to be much more conscious of uh, of that because I think that's amplifying some of the dissonance and some of the some of the problems and there's a kind of a general belief that you know Ireland is kind of like a benign small peripheral state so uh, you know who cares and why would anybody want to interfere in our elections and and that is really to underestimate our central role particularly in kind of corporate governance um, and if we think about the big issues that are kind of lying ahead. Um, on the kind of global agenda, there's going to be governance of the digital sphere. What kind of regulations are going to apply to Twitter, Facebook, Google, YouTube? Every one of those companies is located at some of their European headquarters in Ireland. We're about to have a major uh, discussion about um, medical supply chains if a vaccine is discovered for global pandemics. Which country in Europe provides a vast amount of the European drug supply chain. Well, that's Ireland. There are very serious reasons why people are interested in Ireland. And it's got a lot to do with the kind of corporate governance and the decisions that we take here that have massive implications beyond that. And of course, there are global actors who want to uh, want to influence that. Some of them are corporate. Some of them are, uh, are governments. And I think we are a little bit cavalier in not protecting our public sphere and our public debate 
states more effectively from this. And I think it's a big challenge for whichever government comes in, that they look really at online political advertising, uh, that they look at um, disinformation and misinformation and how that affects public uh, public debates, uh, because that could really have a distorting effect on our politics. Very interesting, Teresa. It actually what occurs to me just as a complete aside is uh the old one about uh, the Skibbereen Eagle, Moscow, we're keeping an eye on you. I was flipped around in the age of social media. Moscow's keeping an eye on Skibbereen, I think you could well suggest. It's not that Moscow wants know, X yeah, party yeah. or Y party to be elected. No, 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 no. But, no. It's, uh, I take your point, absolutely, in terms of how it feeds into EU situation, regulatory, all of that. And, and because we're a hub for so much pharmaceutical industry, it, it's a very interesting aspect of the whole thing. I think Ireland is just a little bit more important than we, I think sometimes we kind of think of ourselves as just a small little country kind of ploughing along on the edge of Europe. But but things that happen here actually have bigger global ramifications than we kind of sometimes think about, you know, when we're busy talking about should the pension age be 65 or 66? Um, and, you know, what's a, an affordable house? Is that 250,000 or 280,000? There are bigger global issues and, and global politics have a kind of a, a, a more prominent role in, in debates and politics in other countries. And they tend not to filter in here at all. And I, I think we need to be a little bit careful about that. We, we probably need to keep a better eye on what's going on around the world and understanding our role in the world. And, you know, our election onto the United Nations Security Council might be a good prompt um, for, for those kind of discussions happening a bit more. Indeed. Teresa, thanks very much for some very interesting insight and for as well letting me know about some flighty notions I may have had myself. Thank you very much, Dr. Teresa Reedy, for joining us today. That's it for this week's podcast, folks. I'd like to thank our engineer, JJ Vernon. Thank you for listening. Uh, you can subscribe to the podcast on the usual platforms, iTunes, iCloud, Spotify. You can contact me. Let me know what you think at mick.clifford.examiner.ie or on the Twitter machine at, at Mick Cliff. See you soon. <laughs>